It is good to be here. Um, for those who may not know, I was on sabbatical for the past three months, and I've expressed this public or uh, through a different, uh, different, a few different means of uh, communication. But I want to express again publicly my gratitude. Uh, Christine and I were so grateful for those who have. Um, stepped up um, to make the sabbatical possible. So the staff and the elders, Michael, Tracy, David, Jeff, and Sammy, and also their spouses, uh, Nate, Christina, uh, Rachel, Sarah, and Annie, um, they've sacrificed so much to serve the church, to love you guys, and to uh, make this sabbatical possible. So I want to, again, uh, thank them. And if you get a chance, you, sh- you guys should thank them as well. You guys have no idea how much they, they are doing right now. So um, thank you, guys. And it is good to be back. And I have been uh, going through this passage that we're going to look at uh, for a few weeks now. And I am excited to go through this with uh, John Cherney. So we're looking at John 17 for the next four weeks. John 17 is known as the high priestly prayer of Jesus. And this is the prayer of Jesus on the night before his crucifixion. And as we jump back into the Gospel of John, we'll be looking at what this prayer means. And this prayer, the, the significance of it is, It gives us a glimpse into the life of the Godhead. In this prayer, we have the Son speaking to the Father, and it shows us what the priorities of Jesus are. So let's look at this text, five verses in chapter 17. Uh, You can look at your bulletin, you can look at at your Bible, but let me read the passage today. John chapter 17, starting with verse 1. When Jesus had spoken these words, he lifted up his eyes to heaven and said, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your Son, that the Son may glorify you, since you have given him authority over all flesh to give eternal life to all whom you have given him. And this is eternal life, that they know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. I glorified you on earth, having accomplished the work that you gave me to do. And now, Father, glorify me in your presence with the glory that I had with you before the world existed. This is the word of God. So today we're going to be talking about the glory of Jesus and how the glory of Jesus is the basis of our hope of eternal life. Or to put put it another way, our lives today have eternal meaning and we can have eternal joy because God the Father answered the prayer of Jesus in today's passage. And my goal over the next few minutes is, is for us to primarily see more clearly the glory of Jesus. And secondly, for us to be in awe of the life that he has for us. So this is going to be a shorter sermon. Um, because we were outdoors, I, I wanted to make sure I wasn't speaking too long. But over the next few weeks, we will be looking at this prayer more in depth. So two points today. Number one, the glory of Jesus. And number two, the eternal life for the sons and daughters of God. So our first point, the glory of the Son. And we're just going to be going through uh, the first few verses, and I'll walk us through it, and I'll try to explain the significance of it. So the prayer begins with Jesus looking up, and he's saying, The hour has come. The hour has come. That sounds ominous. What is the hour? If you've been with us for the past uh, several months, actually since last year, as we've gone through the Gospel of John, 
you may notice that there have been several times when, when it talks about the hour of Jesus. During Jesus' ministry, we're told his hour has not yet come. And this theme of the hour, this is repeated throughout the Gospel of John more than in any of the other Gospels. It first appears at the wedding of Cana, if you remember that. The mother of Jesus says, Jesus, we're in big trouble. Uh, the wedding celebration has run out of wine. And what's the reply of Jesus? Jesus says, woman, my hour has not yet come. And then again, later in the ministry of Jesus, as he's at the Feast of Tabernacles, the brothers of Jesus, they're telling him, Jesus, you should make yourself known. You should make yourself public. And he tells them, my hour or his time has not yet come. And then again, later, when the authorities want to arrest Jesus for causing a scene, for being uh, an irksome presence, they want to arrest him. And what does he say? Or the, the text tells us they weren't able to arrest him because the hour of Jesus had not yet come. And this happens twice in the Gospel of John. But as we move through the Gospel, we're seeing, we're, Jesus is seeing, is revealing himself more and more, who he is and why he came. And now Jesus says, my hour has come. He said this to his disciples uh, earlier this evening, and now he's saying it to his father. So what is this father? Um, what is this hour? The hour is the time when Jesus fulfills the ultimate purpose of his coming. It's what everything that Jesus has been doing is coming to fruition. It's everything that his earthly ministry is pointing to. And here Jesus is praying to his father just a few hours before he's arrested and led to the cross. So what is this hour? The next, the next phrase in the prayer tells us what this hour entails. Jesus says, he asks Jesus, Father, glorify your son. Now I'm going to look at the meaning of this word glory in two languages. The first is Greek. The Greek word for glory is doxa, which means praise. When you praise someone, you're pointing something out about that person. You're pointing something good of that person. This is not just flattery. It's not just saying, oh, you're an amazing person. Um, but it's more than that. This is a recognition of what is true about the actions or character of a person. So when you praise someone, you are doxaing them. Not doxing, doxaing them. You might remember in the prologue of John, chapter 1, verse 14, it says that the word, referring to Jesus, the word became flesh and dwelt among us and we have seen his glory glory as of the only son from the father full of grace and truth and later on in this passage jesus is he says that there was a glory that i had with you before i came to the earth before time began jesus has always been full of glory for all eternity past and then when he condescended to earth he laid aside his glory and now he's asking the father father glorify me again now, the Father, he isn't adding anything new to Jesus. He's restoring what belongs to Jesus, and he's revealing what is true about the Son so that he may be praised. So that's the, when we look at the, the Greek word for glory, that gives us some insight. Now let's look at the Hebrew word. The Hebrew word for glory is this word kabod, kabod, which means weight, when Jesus asks the Father to glorify him, he's asking him to make the full weight of who he is known. Let's take the example of an Olympic athlete. Um, we're not going to have it this year, but you might think back to four years past. Think about the 
Olympic athletes that are on the winners' podiums. When she, when she stands on the podium, the full weight of all her talents, all the years of training, all the sacrifices that she and her family have made, the pride of her country, the admiration of her fans, the respect of her competitors, all these things fall on her while she's on the podium as the gold medal is placed on her neck. The full weight at that moment, the full weight of who she is as an athlete is upon her in that moment. She's recognized for who and what she is as an athlete. And that is glory. So when Jesus asked the Father to glorify him, he's requesting that the entirety of who he is is revealed and that all those who look on him would feel the full weight of who he is. Look at this significance, or think about the significance and the sequence of this prayer of Jesus. Jesus says, my hour has come, my hour has come, and then he has this petition. He says, my hour has come, and now, Father, glorify me. This sequence is a bit odd, because wouldn't you expect that Jesus is glorified after he performed some amazing miracle after he's restored sight to a blind man, or after he raised someone from the dead. Isn't that when Jesus, the full glory of Jesus is revealed? Or maybe it's after he speaks amazing, confounding, unprecedented truths that no one had ever heard before. Wouldn't you think that this is the moment when Jesus is fully glorified? But that isn't the case. Instead, the glory of Jesus is most is known most fully in his suffering. The weight of Jesus can only be experienced when we recognize him as a suffering servant, as the suffering servant, as the prophet Isaiah refers to him. And this is something that we cannot forget. If we're going to talk about Jesus, it can't be divorced from his work on the cross. Jesus is praying And as he's praying to the Father, he has in mind, I'm going to be arrested. I am going to be tortured. I'm going to be nailed on the cross. I am going to experience unimaginable agony. The Father is going to turn his face away from me. I will be stripped naked. I will be completely robbed of my dignity. And yet Jesus says, this is when my glory is going to be most fully known. If we're going to talk about Jesus, you cannot talk about Jesus Jesus without that. And as a church, we have to present the whole Christ. There is the Christ who makes us uncomfortable. The Christ who does not fit our political preferences. The Christ who loves the people that we can't stand. The Christ who calls sinners to repentance the Christ who is tender and humble, the Christ who died on the cross and who calls us to carry our cross and die to ourselves, and the Christ who will one day come to judge the world in justice. There has to be a Christ that we are uncomfortable with. There has to be a Christ who competes against our own preferences And we can't say that Jesus can be all these things unless he is a crucified Savior. This is who Jesus is in his glory. 
And this is why Paul says in 1 Corinthians 2, what does he say? For I decided to know nothing among you, nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. If you want to know Jesus, it has to be in the context of the cross because it's on the cross that the loving heart of the creator for his creation is made known. It's where the justice and the wrath of God is exhibited. It's where his hatred of sin is most fully known. So can we be like Paul and say that I am resolving to know nothing among ourselves except Jesus Christ and him crucified? Because that is the glory of Christ. D.A. Carson puts it this way, the manifestation of the glory of God reaches its apex, not in a blinding flash of resplendent light, but in the agony and triumph of the cross and empty tomb. So this is the glorification of the Son. Father, glorify your Son, and then we continue on in the passage, that your Son may glorify you. That your Son may glorify you. I said at the beginning of this message that this prayer gives us a glimpse into the life of this Trinitarian God. And in this phrase, we get an idea of how this works. So the Bible presents God as a triune God. That he exists eternally as one God in three persons. That within the Godhead, there is the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. They all coexist. Each one is distinct. Each one is equal in worth. And yet, God is still one. And if you've ever tried to wrap your head around this idea of the Trinity, you can testify to the fact that it is impossible to comprehend fully this idea of a triune God. But without it, the assertions that we make about God cannot be true. And there are multiple examples I can give you, but I want to focus on one, which is the love of God. So this idea of a loving God, it sounds so good. And and you can say this. I've I've heard people say this, uh, whether or not they call themselves Christians, that God is love. But how can you say that God is a loving God? I'm going to take us through the, the, the logic of the Trinity right here. In order for God to love, he has to have someone to love. And who would God love before anything existed? If we say that he loves people, then that would mean that he had no one to love until he created human beings. Which would then mean that he cannot be a loving God unless people are around. Now do you see a problem with that? That would make God, the love of God contingent. It would mean that his love would be dependent on his creation. And if that were the case, God would not be a loving God in essence. He would be a loving God by circumstance only. But that is not the God that we worship. Because within the Godhead, there there has always been three persons the Father, the Son, and the Spirit. And before there was ever time, the three persons, they were loving each other, delighting in each other. Within the Godhead, there was an eternal community of love. And this is why we can say that God is love. And he has always been love. Because within the Godhead, there is a relationship. 
Think of your own relationships or think of the relationships that you wish you had. The best relationships are the ones in which both parties are more concerned about the welfare and the joy of the other than they are about their own. Their joy is your joy. And you cannot be satisfied until you know that they are happy. And you love to tell them that these things are true of you, that these are the good things about you. You delight in the other person. This is what the ideal relationship looks like. And this is the remarkable thing about the God of the Bible, that the Father delights in the Son, that the Son delights in the Father, that the Father and Son love the Spirit, that the Spirit loves the Son, that the Spirit takes joy in the Father. This is the triune God. So look again at at these verses and pay attention to what Jesus is praying. He says, Father, glorify your Son so that your Son may glorify you. Jesus is saying, Father, I want you to glorify me so that I can in turn give glory to you. This is not a self-absorbed receiving of affection. Rather, this is a reflection of love back to the giver. All this in the first verse of John 17. Let's move on to verse 2. Since you have given him authority over all flesh to give eternal life to to all whom you have given him, And here is the, this is where our hope comes in. This is the truth that we see in this passage. That the glory of Jesus is fully realized when he exercises his authority to give eternal life to his people. Let me say that again. The glory of Jesus is fully realized when he exercises his authority to give eternal life to his people. And this leads us to our final point. Eternal life for sons and daughters. So when Jesus is talking about eternal life, he's not talking about the quantity of life, but the quality of life. So this is a life that goes, yes, it goes beyond our, our, our life here on earth, but it's not just this uh, everlasting life that goes on 100 trillion billion years. This is eternal life. This is a life. Now, there are some that might look at religion, not just the Christian religion, but any worldview, any ideology, um, and they say, if it works for you, then go for it. If it works for you, go for it. And this is the sentiment that there are certain beliefs that if they help make us better decisions, or if they make us more loving, kinder people, or if they give us more insight into ourselves, then this is fine. And I think that there is some value to these things. But ultimately, these are just ways to create new iterations for ourselves. They're methods for self-improvement. The life that Jesus offers us goes way beyond this better life. The life that Jesus offers, this eternal life, it's a new life that finds its source in the eternity of God. 1 Corinthians 5, If anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. This eternal life is not us being better people. It's us becoming new creations. It's being uh, thrust into this new reality where we have different desires. We have new affections. Our eyes are opened to something that is more true than what we see in front of us. And Jesus tells us what this eternal life is. Verse 3, And this is eternal life, that they know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. 
if we have this eternal life, our deepest joy, our greatest hope is not that we're saved from hell. It's not that we have a new community to relate to. It's not that we have knowledge of the Bible. And to be sure, these things are absolutely vital. And without them, you will shrivel up. But our eternal life goes way beyond that. It's that we know God as a person. It's that we know God as he really is. And this is what St. Augustine is referring to when he says this, that our hearts are restless until they find the rest in you. Our hearts are restless until they find and know the eternal God. The loving God who created us, the loving God who loves us, the loving God who gives himself to us, who protects us, who cares for us, who speaks to us through his word. If you don't know God like that, then you will always be restless. You will always be restless. I, I, I uh, discovered this uh, a song a few um, last week, actually. And it's a composition by a musician, a composer by the name of Max Richter. And I had heard the name Max Richter before, uh, years ago, because I knew that he was in the music industry. And he recomposed uh, The Four Seasons by Vivaldi. And I had heard of Vivaldi before, and I knew that there was this recording of this recomposed Vivaldi. I listened to this song for the first time with headphones um, to, last week. And do you know what I did when I listened to that song? I cried. This was the first time that I listened to this composition by Max Richter. And tears came out of my eyes. And my wife, Christine, will tell you, I hardly ever cry. What was happening there? I knew this music in a way that could not be explained by just reading about this, this composer by the name of Max Richter. Just by reading about Vivaldi, I could not have known that there was this beauty in this piece of music that would cause me to experience it on a completely different level. And this is what Jesus is talking about when he talks of eternal life. That it goes beyond intellectual knowledge. It goes beyond assent to a belief. If this doesn't amaze us that this is who God is, it's because our view of God is too small. It's because we haven't pondered enough the greatness of Jesus. So consider with me. Do you not know that he is sovereign and eternal do you not know that he's omniscient and omnipresent and omnipotent? Do you not know that he is the ground of all reality? That he created and upholds the universe 14 billion light years across and that he knows the number of hairs on your head? Do you not know that he is a good God even in your most painful trials? Do you not know that nothing can separate you from his love? Do you not know that he is drawn to you in your sin and that he promises to cleanse you and sanctify you and that he will not stop working in your life? This is eternal life, to know the true God and his son, Jesus Christ, whom he has sent. And nothing else in your life can matter if this doesn't matter. 1 John 5, we know that the Son of God has come and has given us understanding so that we may know him who is true. 
And we are in him who is true, in his son Jesus Christ. He is the true and eternal life. He is the true God and eternal life. And we can have this life because of what Jesus did on the cross. The cross of Christ was an external act that reflected what was happening in the life of the Trinity for all eternity. It was a sacrificial love. It was a self-giving. And the cross is Jesus sacrificially laying down his life for us, for our sins. It's Jesus giving himself completely to us so that we could know God, so that we could be reconciled to our Father and enjoy him forever. This is the glory of the Son. The glory of the Trinitarian God is foundational to all of reality. And unless we know and love the glory of Jesus, we cannot understand reality. We cannot understand and make sense of our lives as they exist right now. Now, there is something amazing and confounding in this passage. And I can spend the next hour explaining it, but I'm going to spend the next three minutes explaining it. And you can talk to me more just for the sake of time. But let me present to you the implication of, this, of these verses before us. That if you have eternal life, it's not primarily because God loves you. We have eternal life because God loves God. We have eternal life because God loves God. I remember when I first learned this, that I I couldn't wrap my head around it. It was so offensive to me. It was so jarring to me. Because I grew up thinking that God loved me more than anything. But look at our passage here. Jesus is asking to be glorified. And he wants to be glorified so that he can glorify his Father. And he's going to glorify the Father by exercising his authority that the Father gave him to give eternal life to us. The basis of our eternal life is the glorification of the Son and the Father. Or put another way, God loves you because God loves God. This is really good news. Because it means that your eternity, it means that your very life is anchored in the loving relationship in the Trinity. It means that you are not loved because you are lovely or because you can maintain proper rituals or because you can make and keep promises. We are loved and have eternal life because the Father answered his son's request for glory. God does not love you because you are lovely. God loves you because God loves God. And we can enter into this relationship. We are sons and daughters of glory, Hebrews 2. The Father loves us as much as he loves the Son. And nothing, nothing, nothing can shake that. Our life is wrapped up in the glory of Jesus. Our eternal life is only possible because the Father glorified his Son as he bore the punishment for our sins, and then he rose again from the dead. So this is the good news, that you are not loved because you are a good person. You are loved because Jesus died according to to the plan of God. And I want to close our time with two short points, two foundational ideas that uphold our eternal life. Number one, that God exists as a triune God. And number two, that I am made for his glory. 
God exists as the triune God. A belief in a generic and personal deity is, is, this is almost meaningless. When people say they believe in God, that's great. But it's almost meaningless. God has made himself known through nature. He's made himself known through scripture. But he's ultimately made himself known through his son. John 1 tells us that Jesus has explained the Father. The grand purpose of your life is to know God as he's revealed through Jesus. This is the first foundational idea. The second one is that we are made for his glory. And I'm going to close with this. You and I were created for glory. We were created to know glory and to reflect the glory of God. And this is why Romans 3, it says that all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. But God would not leave us in his sin and he would not let us die without hope. And because the gospel message is true, our original intent can be restored. This is God speaking in Isaiah 43, 6 through 7. Bring my sons from afar and my daughters from the ends of the earth. Everyone who is called by my name, whom I created for my glory, whom I formed and I made. You were created for the glory of God. This is your glory to reflect the glory of the Son. Will you pray with me? Father, we are uh, amazed that the Trinity exists. We can't explain it fully, but we rest our eternity on that, that you are an eternal God. I pray that you would press this truth into our hearts, that our lives would reflect your glory. I pray that you would do this for IGC, for us in our individual lives. We pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen.